Welcome in. It's another edition of 10,000 Pitches, a podcast devoted to everything Minnesota soccer. My name is Jeremy Rushing. And uh, whether this is your first time listening or you've tuned into all now seven episodes, uh, thank you so much for tuning in. If you haven't yet, please subscribe. Hitting that subscribe button and us uh, you know, getting more subscribers definitely helps us. And we're replaced on all those platforms. So no matter what platform you're listening on, uh, please hit that subscribe button if you could. If your platform allows you to rate and review the podcast, please do that as well. And be honest with your rating and review too. Um, you know, As great as it is to see a five-star rating, I also like seeing uh, you know, legit ratings that have constructive criticism and feedback on them as well. So, uh, however you're feeling about the podcast, let me know what the rating and review, if your platform allows that also follow us on the socials. If you haven't already, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 10 K pitches. That is the number 10 one zero K pitches on today's episode, two guests talking about roughly the same thing, but in a little bit of a different way. And what I mean by that is first, we're going to have E Pluribus Lunum's Eli Hoff on the podcast to talk about his expose on Minnesota United's Youth Development Academy. If you remember on the podcast last week, we talked in depth on what was happening with the Youth Development Academy, them basically shuttering the program, not a lot of information coming from Manny Lagos and company. Well, Eli Hoff did a lot of digging for E Pluribus Lunum, got a lot of insight from the parents, the families, and a little bit from the organization itself on how they're handling this whole situation, what their plan might be moving forward. So we'll talk to Eli in depth about uh, his experience with that and the great expose, again, he wrote for ePluribusLunum.com. And then at the same time, as interesting as the timing is, this comes at the same time when Minneapolis City is unveiling their kind of development academy program in Minneapolis City Futures, which is set to launch later this year. So as one local soccer club, shutters their development academy another unveils theirs and we'll talk to technical director adam pribble from minneapolis city sc about that new futures program what it looks like and how that all will play out as they get into actually launching that again in november so a lot of talk about development academies both good and bad from minnesota united and minneapolis city sc coming up on the podcast uh speaking of minnesota united though mls is back is underway uh, Minnesota United takes on Sporting Kansas City Sunday night, 7 o'clock, prime time on ESPN. Should get a lot of eyes nationwide and, of course, a lot of eyes here locally watching that as well. The tournament got underway Wednesday night as Inter-Miami took on Orlando City. Orlando City coming away with a 2-1 win after Nani scored uh, six minutes into a 10-minute stoppage time after Andres Reyes took an elbow to the trachea from none other than Dom Dwyer, who actually escaped that match out of the card somehow because that was not his first incident in the match. Reyes, unfortunately, had to be taken off of the uh, field on a stretcher, and he actually had to report to a local hospital. He's fine now. He's back with Inter-Miami, which is all good news. But before I get into Minnesota United, I'm going to revert a little bit to talking about just kind of the overall situation with the MLS's back tournament, because this is one of the issues that the tournament is facing. If somebody gets injured and gets injured to a point in a match where they need to go to the hospital, the ICUs in Orlando and the county that Orlando's in specifically are pretty much full at this portion of time with COVID-19, you know, obviously greatly impacting that entire area. So that throws another wrench and gives the tournament, you know, another 
thing to think about in terms of how safe it is for these players to be there. Obviously, 95% of injuries and things happening, teams do- team doctors can take care of. But as we saw Wednesday night, there may be situations where these guys need to get reported to a hospital. And if there's no ICU beds and they're at capacity, that could be a, a huge, huge issue. So we'll see how that situation plays itself out specifically as the tournament moves on, if they come up with some sort of alternative uh, for those kind of situations. But the tournament is expected to go on, you know, continue on as scheduled. As of the time of this recording, we're two matches in. We're recording this on Thursday afternoon. Um, as uh, by the time you're listening to this on Friday morning, there will have been three matches played. The biggest development, though, is FC Dallas. Um, obviously, is already out of the tournament. But also, Nashville SC has withdrawn from the tournament as well. So, MLS's back is down two teams. But that makes it a little more uniform in terms of their format for the tournament, because now they're down to 24 teams. They have moved around the groups. They moved Chicago who was in that big group a of six teams and they moved them now into group B. So instead of having one group of six and five groups of four, you now have six groups of four, uh, which makes it again, a little more, a little more uniform, uh, very similar, actually exactly the same as the legitimate world cup format. So makes things a little bit uh, easier in terms of, of, in terms of the outline of these groups and how the rest of the tournament will sort of play itself out. No major issues coming to light over the last couple of days of any other teams that have experienced more than a couple COVID-19 cases. So hopefully this is the start of things starting to settle down and uh, remain consistent in a good way in terms of uh, not a lot of cases or issues happening COVID-wise inside the MLS bubble from here on out. But again, Minnesota United, 7 o'clock on Sunday against Sporting Kansas City. And two weeks ago, Jacob Schneider and I from E Pluribus Lunum, we went through our predictions of how we thought the group stage would go. I think we need to reset those now after the Icopara injury, not necessarily an injury. He is choosing to stay home from the, at least the group stage of the MLS's back tournament as he nurses a pre-existing condition, pre-existing injury. He hasn't ruled out the possibility of returning should the loons advance to the knockout stages. So that's where we're at with Opara, but he will for sure not be there for their three group stage matches. So what are realistic expectations now for Minnesota United that they'll be down arguably their most important player? They had a friendly against Chicago Fire Wednesday morning that was cut short at halftime due to rain. They were reportedly losing 2-0 at half. I'm not too worried about the score. Again, there aren't going to be any highlights or anything that comes out uh, for us to look at and actually analyze from that friendly. But we do know through reports that the Loons went with their traditional 4-2-3-1 formation. And Jose Aja was the one who uh, was in Opara's spot as expected. It's the easiest thing for Heath and company to do with the late notice that Opara's, uh, not departure because he never even came to Orlando, but his absence created, you know, Maybe it was too late to think about a formation change or anything like that. So plugging Jose Aja, who is a traditional center back, into that uh, spot where Opara uh, left will be kind of the easiest and, and best way for Minnesota United to sort of deal with that moving forward from a formation and organizational standpoint on the field. Aja does have MLS experience 
and he is a he's tall which kind of fits he fits the build that you want from a center back a tall athletic guy who can uh you know head balls out of the box you know stick his feet in there and and make challenges so obviously he can't do that at the level that Igo Parra does but with the other three in that back line being of such quality with Chase Gasper, Michael Boxall, and Roman Montaner, uh, they, you know, the slack can be picked up there for whatever Jose Aja cannot provide that Opara usually did. So um, I'm not too concerned from an organizational standpoint, but what Opara did so much was start the counterattack from Minnesota United. He would challenge in, and then uh, his passing from the back was so crisp and so good consistently that that to me is where Minnesota United will miss Ike Opara the most in starting those counterattacks. And like I said with Jacob Schneider a couple of weeks ago, I think counterattacking football, counterattacking soccer is going to be the style that really thrives in this condensed tournament scenario. A lot of tired legs are going to be seen late in matches. And if you can get the right guys on the field at the right times with fresh legs, maybe bring on a couple super subs, and you can catch a team sleeping or catch a team tired on a counterattack, that could be how you get one or two late goals, which could make the difference in some of these matches, especially the early matches where guys aren't necessarily at their most fit yet. So that is going to be tough for Minnesota United to overcome from that standpoint. But... Although Ike Opara is their most important player, he is just one of 11 in that starting formation. And there are so many other great players that Minnesota United still has. I don't see us reverting back to 2018 here and a team that only performed well at home. I see this team still being able to compete and still having a chance to advance. Now, I said... With the healthy Icopara a couple of weeks ago, I expected Minnesota United to get four points out of this group. I thought they would draw against Sporting Kansas City. I thought they would beat Real Salt Lake, and I thought they would lose to Colorado. Three or four points. Uh, four points is still not nearly out of the realm of possibility for me. Um, maybe they do drop to Sporting Kansas City. Uh, maybe they don't get any points out of that. Maybe they beat Real Salt Lake, and maybe they do lose to Colorado. But if they can be at a point where they have three points, maybe even four points, heading into the Colorado Clash in the third group stage match, they get themselves a good opportunity to advance and a good opportunity to, even if they don't get in the top two, again, picking up one of those wildcard spots as one of those third-place teams that can advance. The likelihood of them advancing obviously takes a huge hit when you factor out Igopara. But it's not impossible. It's not out of the realm of possibility. I still think they're a better team than Real Salt Lake. I still think that they can compete against Sporting Kansas City. Colorado is still one of my sleeper picks. That has not changed. So we'll just see how that plays out. But I don't think Minnesota United fans should be counting this team out yet based on the fact that also this tournament is going to be a crapshoot just completely. It could go chalk. But this is a situation we've literally never found ourselves in before from a, not only a life standpoint, but from a sporting competition standpoint. So I think, you know, the, the luck could maybe just fall in the lap of Minnesota United. There's been a lot of sloppy first halves. So if Minnesota United, especially in this first match against Sporting Kansas City, can just play clean football, crisp football in the first half, they don't really need to do anything flashy. They just need to be less sloppy than sporting, you know, they could find themselves with a halftime lead and be able to pack it in in the second half and come out with three points. That could be a realistic possibility. 
there are a lot of different scenarios that could play out in this tournament that make me believe that Minnesota United is not dead in the water just because they lose Ike Opara. Obviously, huge hit, but they still could realistically advance to the knockout rounds. And if they get Opara back, they'll definitely get Brent Coleman back when they advance to the knockout rounds, which will help their defense anyways. But if they get Opara back as well, then we're back off and running, and we could see this team advance pretty far. Me and Eli Hoff, though, have a different solution to the absence of Ike Opara that we think could really play to the strengths of this Minnesota United team. Over the offseason, Adrian Heath, Mark Watson, and company brought in guys who – could play both defense and midfield and were flexible in terms of the positions you could put them in on the field and the quality that they could bring to those positions. And this, to me, really plays into a 3-4-3 type of formation for the Loons. You keep three at the back, Gasper, Boxall, Metzenaire, but then you make up for the loss of Opara by adding an extra midfielder. So your midfield, you know, you could, whether that's Raheem Edwards, whether that's Hassani Dotson, you could bring in a midfielder who's also experienced from a defensive standpoint. Hassani Dotson has a lot of experience on the back line. Raheem Edwards can play anywhere on the left side. He is technically your backup left back on this team. So the defensive slack can be picked up from a midfield standpoint if you go with that 3-4-3 type formation. And not only can Dotson and Edwards play defensively they can also bring quality in the attacking third as well Raheem Edwards has played the left wing Dotson as we've saw numerous times last year has a rocket for a boot and he can provide a lot in the attacking third for Minnesota United so you bring in these flexible midfielders who can play defense but also push the ball up the field that helps with that counter-attacking style that I think could proved to be the winning style in this tournament and I think could really play to Minnesota United's advantage especially when you consider the types of players and the personnel that they brought in in the offseason but again the problem with that and the argument against that is just the lack of time for preparation for that kind of formation because when you're talking about a formation change like that when you have done nothing but but have a four back set for basically the entire time that uh, guys like Roman Mentonair, Chase Gasper have been with Minnesota United, it's tough to adjust to something different than that. And it's really tough to do that on this short notice. So that is the only argument against that for me is the lack of prep time. But when you're talking about ideal scenario in a vacuum, that 3-4-3 without Opara would play, I think, to their advantage. And that is something if they get desperate or if they find it relevant to do so in the middle of a match, they could you know, transition to that type of formation too. But as we saw with the friendly against Chicago Fire, as it was reported yesterday morning, it was that 4-2-3-1 with Jose Aja in Opara's spot. And that's what I look for Minnesota United to do in their first match. Sunday, 7 o'clock, prime time against uh, Sporting Kansas City on ESPN. All right, now it's time to bring in our first guest. We're going to switch gears from on the field and talk a little bit more about what's happening with Minnesota United's Youth Development Academy situation. Here is my interview with E Pluribus Lunum's Eli Hoff. We now welcome in Minnesota United and MLS contributor for E Pluribus Lunum, Mr. Eli Hoff. Eli, thank you so much for taking the time, man. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, Jeremy. 
We're going to get into the uh, uh, Youth Development Academy situation with Minnesota United here in a second. You wrote an awesome expose on that for E Pluribus Lunum, so I do want to get to that. But first, talk a little bit about your personal background in writing and soccer coverage and how you kind of got to uh, E Pluribus Lunum. Yeah, well, I, it's it's a journey that I think is probably a little bit unique. Um, I started writing for E Pluribus when I was 15 years old. I was a wow. sophomore in high school. I wanted to give sports journalism stuff a try. And then after a little while there, I became the managing editor and, and held that role until around this time last summer when I stepped down. I go to the University of Missouri where I'm pursuing journalism there. And so I, I don't do as much Minnesota United work as I used to or as I'd really like to. A, a lot of it is now, you know, Mizzou sports coverage down in Columbia, Missouri there. But I, I started young, but it, it feels weird to say now that this is the fourth year that I've been covering Minnesota United in some capacity and I'm 19 years old. But it's certainly been been a fun time so far. Starting early, but I mean, that's yeah, writing quality stuff like you're writing now, you definitely have a have a bright future. That's for sure. Oh, thank you. Kind of veering off the MLS path for just a second. As far as you know, what's what's college sports looking like in the fall? Uh, from what you're hearing um, from Mizzou, <laughs> that's the million dollar question. Just from from talking to other sports editors and and the PR folks down there, it, it's sounding like it, it will be certainly limited capacity for football games at the most i know covering an sec football team i'm thinking the sec will look very different from some other football conferences i think they're a lot more likely to to have fans in the stands or have more fans than say the pac-12 or the mountain west i selfishly i'd hope that there's a one a college football season to a lot of media access Mm -hmm. but I, i totally understand the concerns over it you know these college athletes, there's, there are enough issues with them not really being compensated for what they're doing. The last thing we need to do is put them in more danger as far as the pandemic is concerned. Football is obviously on a different tier than a lot of other fall sports. Um, since this is a soccer podcast, as far as, you know, those secondary fall sports like soccer go, uh, you know, I've heard a lot of things from them moving all the seasons to the spring or scra- maybe just scrapping the 2020-2021 season altogether. Um, are you hearing anything specific about sports like soccer, for example? Yeah, you know, I, I won't pretend I'm plugged into the college soccer universe as much. Mm-hmm. I personally don't like the idea of moving it to the spring just because, you know, MLS is going to start in the spring, we assume, for next year. It's the same sort of thing with, with college football, with the draft. You know, we want to give these players a shot to compete at the next level, whatever that looks like. And I, I think that would interfere with that. I think soccer and some of those, the, the Olympic sports or or secondary sports, I think they have a better shot at still being played this fall just because, in all honesty, there aren't going to be as many fans in the stands anyway for those sports, so I think it would be a little bit easier there. Again, what it looks like, that's the million-dollar question these days. I I think everyone's watching the Ivy League right now as far as what they're going to do with sports, how much of an effect that will have on, on every other conference and every other program. I don't know, but I, I think that's where we're looking for right now. But uh, again, in a week, we could be looking at something completely different in, in two months, really, when, when yeah. these things are starting. Who knows what it'll look like then? Two months ago, it was a completely different millennium. So Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's what it feels like for sure. Transitioning back to our main topic here, which is Minnesota United and their uh, shuttering of the Youth Development Academy. MLS does require all their clubs to have an academy in some way, shape, or form. What are the standards and are they clear beyond just, just having an academy? Are there other standards in place from, from the MLS for their clubs? Well, I, I think the big thing with that is that 
I don't know what there's going to be in terms of standards come the 2020-2021 academy year, which will be starting this fall. There are going to be 94 clubs in the new MLS system for, for academies. And I find it hard to believe that there's going to be a lot of travel happening this fall. You know, I, I don't think even if Minnesota United has a fully fledged academy has teams this fall, I even think it would be a stretch to, to send those kids down to Kansas City or Chicago or Cincinnati to play games. And, and they're certainly not going to be going to New York or abroad to a place like Manchester. Yep. So I, I think there's a question to be asked over what MLS Academy structure is expected to look like in the fall. You know, will there be some forgiveness for, for pandemic stuff and in terms of both finances and literally with travel logistics? I don't know. I don't think there are many people who know, but all we really know at this point is there still is that requirement that there does need to be an academy with the team. Got it. And then Minnesota United did have four academy squads, right? Yep. You mentioned a lot of these parents felt the writing was on the wall, so to speak, that they were you know, n- not really as interested in the academy as they were the main team or other portions of the club that they felt were more profitable. What's the overall history look like for Minnesota United's academy and how quickly did that uh, priority kind of shift? Well, it started off in, in 2017. That was the first year of MLS competition, the first year of the academy. They started with the U13 and U14 teams. So they started young, and their plan was just as that first age group got older, they would just expand as they needed to, still going into U15, U17, et cetera. And I think that was a little bit different strategy than a lot of MLS academies have gone with, but it wasn't a bad one, I don't think. You know, it, it makes it pretty easy to expand. You know exactly when and how you're going to expand every year. Exactly. So I think from, from a financial standpoint, they know more or less how much money they're going to need to be putting in every year, and that's going to expand. What I think the problem was, was that there wasn't enough expansion happening. You're talking to a former coach. It sounds like the budget wasn't changing enough from year to year, and so that's why this past year fees doubled for families. So that was kind of the writing on the wall that I think a lot of them saw, that there wasn't the level of investment that they perhaps wanted to see mm-hmm. in the academy, which that shows up to the coaches who are working there to the parents who are interacting with those coaches and sending their kids there. I think too, in terms of, of communication, one thing I talked about in that story, these coaches were expected to do a lot. I know this wasn't something I reported in the story, but, but I've had people reach out to me after Joe Detlaff, who's the Academy manager there was selling season tickets for a little while. You know, that's the sort of thing that, that I don't think you would see at too many other MLS academies. And Again, that's something that's evident not only to those coaches, but to the parents as well when they're seeing their their kids head coach not be able to put 100% of their attention into their kids' development or that team's development. And with the communication, I I know multiple parents have said, obviously, we expected the pandemic to throw a fork in all of this stuff. It was probably not going to be perfect, but the communication was really, really lacking there as far as what the plans were, whether this was going to resume, how that was going to look. And then in a way, it just kind of came out of the blue for them that they're, they're essentially scrapping the academy. A lot of parents had been expecting information to, to come from Manny Lagos or, or Tim Carter, somebody very soon about what the academy would look like. They just they weren't expecting it to be that the academy won't be looking like much anytime soon. Yeah. And is that the common theme that you're hearing from the parents? Is it the lack of communication or is it more just just the frustration of the lack of investment? Well, I think it's both. I think in terms of right now, it's the lack of communication with this decision kind of coming out of the blue since then. They're, they're being told different things. I talked to, to one parent who had just had a call with, with Lagos and 
you receive different information from what parents have been told the week before. So that information is changing and it sounds like it's not getting relayed to everybody the same. But that, that investment was something that was more prevalent over the past few years as well. I think it, it was something that, that showed up just in those, those coaches wearing a lot of hats. I had several different quotes in the story of, of parents saying it, just, it felt like it was about the money. Obviously, it was a pay-to-play structure. That, that looks not great from the outside, them being only one of two teams in MLS. I think it's important for the money to go in there. And if we're being honest here, a lot of the, the kids that were involved, finances weren't a huge issue for, for them and their families based on the ones I talked to. A lot of them were coming from some of these suburban clubs that were sort of expensive to pay for anyway. And, and there were scholarships available. Sounds like that number uh, decreased. But I think it was more of, of a culture thing that, that they noticed on the higher end of the definition of return on investment with the academy varied. I, I think there are a few different ways you can kind of define that when we get an academy. You can look at it as we get a return on our investment when a player comes up and joins the first team, right? That's a pretty clear return. Or when a player doesn't join our first team, but he joins another club's first team and we make some profit off of that. Those are the kind of two obvious returns that are, I think, the lens through which Lagos and ownership view the academy. What I think parents and perhaps the general soccer community would rather see is a view of return as we're growing the youth game here. We're giving these kids something bigger to play for. We're giving kids something to aspire to. And I don't think Minnesota United saw the value in that. These parents would, would 100% agree with that statement as well. So we'll get to the infamous Zoom call in, in just mm -hmm. a second. But I want to piggyback off of something you said. You said that Minnesota United launched their youth academy program a bit different than other clubs have. We've seen already successful youth academy programs from clubs like Atlanta United and some of these recent expansion clubs into MLS already seeing some sort of success from that. Where did Minnesota United go wrong or what should they maybe have done differently? Is it simply the investment they put in, the, the lack of priority they gave to the academy? Or could they have done something different from a financial investment standpoint at the beginning to not necessarily, I guess, for lack of a better term, back themselves into that wall where now they have to shutter the whole thing? Yeah, I, I think there are a couple of different ways of looking at it. One, they certainly could have put more money in. And I say that as someone who's not plugged into the finances of the club, perhaps they couldn't have put more money in, but I think you would like to have seen them put more money in. And, and especially now where you look at, they, they say this is th for financial reasons that they're doing the, the structural rethink as they're calling it. But then you look at, you know, they're, they're being rumored to, to go back on, in on Reno. So right in 4.5, 4.7 million dollars, whatever it is. One day after right. they shutter the program. I was, I was talking exactly. on the podcast last week. I'm like, that's, it's not necessarily a good look to be talking about investing in one player after you kind of decide not to invest in your academy. It, it really isn't. And, and this is a figure that I didn't report because I only heard it from, from one place. But it sounds like the, the ownership or club was giving the academy about a million dollars a year. Again, that's a figure I'm not super confident in. I didn't report it in the story. But you look at, you know, $4.7 million, you space that over, over three years, that's $1.5 million a year over the mm -hmm. next three years. That's, you know, that's going to be a 50% increase every year for the academy. Mm -hmm. I think that kind of investment would have maybe done a few things. Yep. And at the same time, because they were starting with those younger age groups, it was always going to take four or five years for them to see any return in terms of getting mm -hmm. players into the first team. Because... Yes, they signed Fred Emmings at 15. Are you going to start a 15-year-old kid? He's 16 now, but are you going to start him in an MLS game? No, you're not. You're probably not going to start him until he's 18, maybe 19, right? 
And so that's going to be five years from, from the start of it. You know, we're going into to year four now and, and they've sort of punted on the thing. I think in a way they, they decide to see it through. It's kind of the, the perils of, of starting with the younger age groups and building up. It's, just, it's always going to take time Then you're not going to see results in those first three years. You might maybe, okay, you sign the kid on a homegrown contract, mm-hmm. but you're not going to see those first team contributions. You're not really going to see profits from players going elsewhere. So I think they just they had to give it time, and for whatever reason, they, they weren't willing to. Fair enough. All right, let's talk about the Zoom meeting. This, to me, was one of the most interesting portions of your, of your article over at epluribuslunum.com, where you're talking about, so Tim Carter emails all the academy parents and says, hey, we're, we're having a Zoom meeting with Manny Lagos. Uh, time and place doesn't really give any other details. Just rega- I guess he said it was regarding the future of the academy within the email. So everybody gets connected. And then I'll, I'll let you kind of take it from here in terms of how that meeting went. Yeah, well, one quick clarification there. It actually wasn't Manny who sent out that communication. It was Joe Detlaff, who's the Got academy it. manager. He, from my understanding, is the academy staffer who's on furlough, who still technically has a job with the club. Again, I don't have that confirmed, but he's been sending out communication to the family. So I take that to assume that he's still there. By this point, when he sent out that message, the news had been broken by The Athletic that there were cuts within the academy. Obviously, that sent all the parents spinning lots of messages and texts between them. And when they figured out that it looks like the academy is gone at this point, and they, they get the message from, from Detlaf, and it's not very specific about what's happening at all. There's no reference to any cuts or anything like that. So they go into the meeting, and this was on a Friday, you know, about two weeks ago now. And they go in, and it starts off with some prepared remarks from, from Manny and from the club. And it starts off with a presentation on the Black Lives Matter movement and what's been happening there. And the consensus between both me and the parents is, is that's fantastic what the club has done there and taking that stance. However, to these parents, you have to understand that's not what they wanted to hear there. That was not what they came to this meeting for. They, they came to the meeting for information on what's happening to their kids' academy, not social it's, justice. It's weird to start a presentation about, hey, you know, there's really not a future or there doesn't look to be a future here for your kids with, hey, here's what we're doing for social justice. It's, it's exactly. kind of a weird dynamic. Exactly. And, and what multiple parents said, it felt like, and, and I think we can, it's pretty obvious what, what it was. It's an attempt to put a positive spin on something that's very, very negative. And, you know, we've all been in, in meetings like that or situations like that where you, you know it's just something that's meant to try to make people feel happy before you're, you're taking them down a few notches. Then many parents described the, the meeting after that point as very disorganized. Detlaf was moderating the discussions. It was parents asking questions of Manny. And I've seen Manny described as, as arrogant here. Everybody said he, he's not really giving answers. They're not answers. You know, parents are having to, to ask the same questions twice. Just, it's an old journalism trick to just change up the wording of a question. They were having to do that in the meeting where they're getting information. And, and I think the, the key here, it's not like this was a press conference where it was really, you know, about Lagos instilling his, this is a structural rethink, all that stuff. These are the parents who just want the information related to their kids. And they, they weren't really getting that. It sounds like based on a follow-up email from, from Detlaf after that, the meeting just sort of ended abruptly. It sounds like it lasted exactly an hour and the Zoom meeting just kind of cut off. I, I don't have that super confirmed, but then he, he sent up a follow-up about uh, an hour and 15 minutes after the meeting saying, there will be additional meetings with Manny. There will be additional communication coming. Uh, last week, I know of a couple parents at least that had one-on-one meetings with uh, Manny. It sounds like that's mostly 
the out-of-state parents, those who maybe moved to Minnesota for the academy, and some of the older kids who who can't really afford to to take a year off. They need to go find somewhere else to play. It sounds like they're the higher priority right now in terms of getting information, meeting one-on-one. But again, it sounds like that that Zoom meeting was was a little bit of chaos. Yeah, uh, definitely to say the least. So, what is next for these these academy players from Minnesota United? You had mentioned earlier that the current climate kind of makes things a little uncertain that club football in any sort of sense is going to happen at all this fall or whenever. What is next for these these players in terms of what are you hearing from parents in terms of their plans? Are they going to go back to their clubs? Is their club football available to be played? You know, how is that looking for them? Well, one of the big distinctions, some of the parents who are a little bit more plugged in nationally in terms of MLS and, and academies are saying that other clubs around the country are finding ways to start training safely here. Obviously, they're not playing games. It's probably small group, maybe even socially distanced and stuff. But there are opportunities to be had right now for players. So uh, we know multiple players and their families have already gone down to Kansas City. They've already gone down and tried out there. That, I think, is probably the most logical destination if they're going to stick with Mm -hmm. an MLS Academy that's not Minnesota. Chicago and Cincinnati were also mentioned as destinations as well. One family talked about going down to Arizona. So they could really be going all over. Uh, I think you're also going to see a good number of families, mostly those on the younger side, who are going to go try to play club soccer, travel soccer in the Twin Cities. I know Tonka United was mentioned as a club that, that might get some interest. Um, a couple parents said they're kind of forming a group where they want to keep the kids together. They're just going to pick out a club, and essentially that club is going to get an influx of Minnesota United Academy players coming in. I think from, from talking to some of them, too, they haven't ruled out returning to Minnesota United. Again, on the older end, they, they don't have as many seasons to waste, so they're probably going to go to another MLS Academy and stay there. But for some of these U13, U14 players, they might go do traveling soccer here in the Twin Cities for a year, see what happens with Minnesota United, and come back. And, and again, we don't know what Minnesota United's Academy is going to look like this fall. And there's a chance it could come back. Again, that looks extremely unlikely right now. And I think the, the question that at least I hope to ask of Lagos, and I think all these parents would too, is what is 2020, 2021 going to look like for these kids? Because we just don't know that. So I think you could see some families come back you know, a, a year from now if things are back to normal. But the one thing that all these families stressed was that their kids loved it playing for Minnesota United. And then I think you can imagine that being a 13, 14, 15-year-old kid and essentially getting to say you play for your state's professional soccer team. You know, you have the jersey like the pros. You get the training gear. Several parents saying, you know, these kids are wearing their gear to school every day. Yep. Like, I was I was never an elite athlete as a kid, but I can imagine how much – That'd be pretty cool. And how, exactly. So I, I think you, you might see some families come back here, be willing to forgive – and a lot of the families stressed that it'll be up to their kid what they want to do because I think there are a lot of kids who, who while they want to play elite-level soccer, maybe at 13 years old don't want to have their family move to Kansas City or be driving you know, that seven, eight hours far too often to go play soccer there. And a lot of them enjoyed the coaches at Minnesota United. Like on a day-to-day, in terms of literally playing soccer operations, the academy sounds fantastic. And the coaches all sound like they were good. The instruction was good. The team, from what I get, teams from what I gather, were doing pretty well in the games they played. But again, you're going to see families go a lot of different directions here in the next next few months. So you talked about not being clear what the uh, fall in 2020-2021 season looks like for the academy. Do you have any idea what Minnesota United, at least 
from a bare bones perspective has to do with their academy because technically they have to have an academy structure of some sort but with the covid situation i mean is mls just kind of kind of grant them some sort of extension or what do i guess do we know what minnesota united has to do at least in the short term with their academy yeah well that's a great question and another one that i wish i could have asked the blagos we we didn't get an interview for the story and so my my entirely speculation but i have a feeling mls will will give some leeway to clubs this fall because again i doubt there's going to be any national travel going on among kids when we we really can't even figure out how to move professional athletes safely in and out of bubbles and and for teams i i I find it hard to believe that we're going to be sending a bunch of kids and their families around yeah but i think i do i think it's because of them keeping one staff member on furlough I'm sure they're able to technically say we have an academy because we have one staff member on furlough. It's a technicality. And at the same time, I don't know what kind of punishment there would be from MLS for a club not having an academy. Because if you're MLS, I think you build that rule assuming that no one's ever going to break it. So you Mm -hmm. don't really have to define a punishment because you don't expect a club to get rid of their academy. And again, because Minnesota United is classifying this as because of COVID-19 and because of the financial hit, there could be more leeway there. Again, we really don't know what it's going to look like in terms of programming. There are still a lot of questions about what the next steps are going to be for MLS and for this academy. I haven't researched this. I don't know if you did for your PC lot. Is there any sort of precedent for this sort of situation? No precedent whatsoever. I know uh, since the story's come out, something's happened with Montreal's academy. It sounds like they fired their director. I don't speak French, so I gathered very little from the story yes. I, I saw. But uh, again, no precedent that I gathered for this. And I think that's why this is such a shocking story in that it's Minnesota United doing this. You know, nobody wants their hometown club to be the one who's cutting their youth academy. But I think it's catching the national community by a lot more surprise than it is the parents who are part of this. Uh, On the other side, do you see this setting any sort of precedent for other MLS clubs? I I hope not. Mm -hmm. Just because, you know, talking to these families, seeing what it's done for them and what it's what complications and headaches it's creating, you know, you, you don't want to see that because it's about kids here. I mean, yeah. Sports are a business. I, I don't think we want to be exposing 13 year old kids to the business side of sports too much yeah. at, at that exactly. age. And so that's obviously difficult. And I, in all honesty, I think you're going to see clubs, especially Kansas city, maybe Chicago and Cincinnati too, sort of being able to capitalize on this. Yeah. They're, they're going to get some players from Minnesota, you know, how those releases are going to work with families having to go to the league. Again, we don't know what that process is really going to look like, how easy it is or how it's going to play out. But I think you could see some other teams sort of benefit from Minnesota United's actions here. And that in a sense could be a way of discouraging other clubs from doing this simply from the, we don't want to help out our rivals who are in close proximity to us because that's where the families are going to go. Yeah. Last question that has nothing to do with the Academy, but I just want to get your take. What's, what's the likelihood we get an MLS's back tournament? Oh, man. Well, it it seems to be getting less and less likely Mm -hmm. by the day. Um, Again, selfishly, I really, really want to see it. I miss MLS. Um, You know, I I know the league is going to do everything that it can to make this tournament happen, just in terms of they've put so much effort into it anyway, it would be a bad look to have to cancel it. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know what the magic number of teams that withdraw or cases that you have inside the bubble where you have to punt on it. Mm-hmm. You know, in Dallas going, okay, 
and then I think we got to know we're recording this Tuesday morning because I think there will be yeah, some oh, absolutely I, Tuesday morning for a Friday podcast drop. There could be so many developments that yeah, can happen it, between now and now. And, and so, you know, if we see something like Nashville drop out again, that's, that's two teams. I think they can probably take that two team hit, but I, I don't know what the, what the kind of arbitrary threshold you set is because, you know, once you get to three, four teams, that's a significant chunk. Yeah. Um, I, I made the joke on Twitter yesterday, one team gone, but you still have 96% participating. That's still an A. So, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens there. Again, I just, I hope we get to see some sort of soccer. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. But like you said, things are, things are changing and every single update seems to be for the worse by, by the hour almost at this point. So uh, yeah, by the time we drop this podcast on Friday, I may have to cut in here and give some sort of uh, <laughs> disclaimer update on, on what's happening for sure. For sure. Eli Hoff, E Pluribus Lunum, Minnesota United and MLS contributor. Thank you so much for the time. And in addition to how the MLS's back situation develops, we'll obviously be interested in seeing how the uh, Minnesota United Youth Academy situation develops. And I know you'll be on top of it. And it's at by Eli Hoff on, on Twitter, right? That's correct. Yeah. You'll, I apologize. You'll, you'll see a lot of very random tweets. I write for four different places. One of them is Minnesota United related. A couple are Mizzou sports related. Another is just a magazine that does other stuff. So uh, you get a lot of fun content on your Twitter timeline. It's a good wide range of topics. So looking forward, <laughs> yeah. uh, looking forward to talking with you more, Eli, as, this, as all these situations progress. Yeah, absolutely. I'll have updates uh, coming out as they happen here. Perfect. Thank you so much, man. You have a good one. Thanks you as well. All right. We're joined now by the technical director from Minneapolis City SC, Adam Pribble. Adam, thanks for jumping on the show once again, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And also, I got to congratulate you. You're officially the first reoccurring guest on 10,000 Pitches. So, man. Yeah. Big, big Appreciate honor. It. Expect the plaque to be in your mailbox uh, sometime soon. I'm just kidding. We're not going to say that. <laughs> it's kind of cool. I mean, uh, we had a really good conversation back in episode, I believe it was episode three, where we talked about the donation drives that you guys were putting together and stuff like that. So, if you're a newer listener to 10,000 Pitches, that was a great conversation not only with Adam but also Vlora FC's uh, Vincent Knox as well about uh, just kind of giving back to the community during the times when they needed it so definitely I would recommend going back and listening to that but today is going to be all about the new futures program that Minneapolis City SC has kind of unveiled and uh, it just officially made the announcements last week and then more information uh, came yesterday or Wednesday I should say about how that uh, program is going to look but Adam, just from a general standpoint, can you give us kind of an overview of what this new venture is designed to do and who it's for? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, so we are designing this program and it's really funny. We, so all of our members, we are a member owned club, right? You can pay for a membership. It's really cheap. It's like $65, $70. And then you get to vote on things that happen within the club. 18 months ago, so it was October of 2018, our members said, yes, we want to move forward with kind of a U19 program, right? Mm -hmm. So we started as this adult, professionally amateur club. Uh, we've got two teams that have done fairly well, and we're starting to build that down to try to address this gap that happens in between youth soccer and then what happens past youth soccer. Mm -hmm. So anyways, 
we brought in uh, a really high level coach. His name is Jeremiah Johnson. I've been working really closely with him um, and some other people in our front office, like our head coach, Matt Van Benskoten, um, our sporting director, John Bisworm, um, and our chairman, Dan Hudeman. And we've worked on this program so that we're trying to address, you know, the young player, so anywhere from ages 16 to 19, 20, um, that high-level player, we're going to be taking the top 40 to 50 players, um, and we're going to bring them into our system, and they're going to be doing some pool training and then different intra-club competition. So basically, we're looking to get them in more small-sided formats and playing each other in a, in a league. And what it does is it takes away the element of travel that becomes an issue with Minnesota soccer. Like, yep. I think everyone has seen, there's some graphics out there on like the different academies now that are across the country. And it's like, Minnesota's kind of on an island, right? Like we're here, we've got Chicago, there's a couple in Wisconsin, that's it, right? So anytime that anyone enjoys one of these elite academies, you might be spending a lot of money. There might be a lot of travel. Um, and sometimes, a lot of times kids are traveling more than they're actually playing soccer. So we tried to design a program that is local, is really tapping into the talent that Minnesota has, and then trying to elevate that into a system that has proven to work for us. Does that mean, as from a competition standpoint, is everything going to be internally based? I guess this is a two-part question. So first, yeah. is, is all the competition going to be internally based? And B, with at least some of it being kind of, like, like you said, inter-squad type stuff, how many separate teams or how many individuals do you, do you aim to bring in to this new program? Yeah, good question. So and we're going to have, there's going to be anywhere from 40 to 50 players that we bring in to start right? This is just year one. Um, within that, then we're probably going to be looking at anywhere from four to five. And again, we let the market dictate what we do. So if if there's 60 really, really good players that we just can't pass on, then we're going to bring in 60 players, right? But then from there, we're going to take a look and we're going to break them down into teams. And and we've already had our, you know, our designers and our chairman, Dan, like they've done their thing and they've designed some really cool jerseys. We've already got teams that are going to be representing uh, local Minneapolis neighborhoods um, and they're going to be playing each other. Now, what, what happens within this program is that the top 18 to 20 players are then going to be selected to play friendlies right so and then we're going to set up some local friendlies against against really strong teams and th those may be upsl teams they may be um they may be npsl teams they may be um, uh, other academy teams so but the whole the whole point is to continue to push players at, at the pace that they need right so if we see okay there's 18 to 22 players here that that are just standing out and they need to be pushed even more, we're gonna do that. The other aspect to this that's really exciting for me is we're gonna bring players into the first team training, right? So we've stacked training to say, okay, yep, you guys have training here and we'll tap some kids on the shoulder and say, gosh, you're doing really well. Let's have you try against the big guys here. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna bring them into first team training and then just push them because that's what that's what these kids need. They need to constantly be challenged.
from a, a selection standpoint in terms of who's going to be coming into this program, is it going to be a hundred percent tryout based or will there be situations where, I mean, you know, of a kid, you've heard of a kid, he's too good to pass up on. He's definitely just somebody you definitely want to bring in who doesn't even need to try out. Is that situation something that you could see happening or is it going to be all kind of tryout based? There's one thing I want to make really clear to before I move on is that like this program is, is a, in addition to, anything that kids are already doing right gotcha. so if they're playing in high school um, or they're playing in club soccer already great we want them to continue to do that we really do believe that our youth clubs in the area are are doing a really good job at at training and developing our kids like the the level of coaching and the programming that's being offered is very high and so we don't want to disrupt that uh, we want to work with youth clubs in the area to say if you've got kids that you believe are are looking for something a little bit more, send them our way, right? And have them try out. Now, now to your specific question, Jeremy, the identification process is going to be probably the most important thing that we do. Mm-hmm. Because what we want to do with this program is to provide access to this program for the top 40 to 50 players, period. Now, I think that that should be including a lot of kids that don't have access, whether financially or otherwise, to the U.S. soccer club system, right? We know that there's a pay-to-play model. We know that that involves travel. Oftentimes that those things aren't always accessible for for all types of kids and all types of families. So we are currently on the ground now working with local communities to create awareness for this. So we're doing some recruiting in that manner. We're working obviously with the youth clubs to start to say, let's let's come to the table and work together on this and just introduce the program. Um, and, and right now it's being received really well. We're also going to be working with high schools across the state and, and those high school coaches, because oftentimes high school coaches have access to kids that aren't playing club soccer because High school athletics are are very affordable and they're, I mean, the kids already are in school, so it's a great option. So that's how we're going to be approaching it. Even more to your point, we're, it's going to be all trial-based. So in November, we'll have trials. What we have found with Minneapolis City um, is that no matter who you are, what sort of clout you have, whatever it may be, of course, there's some talents that you're just like, we want you. Mm-hmm. But we still have to see you play in person. Got it. That's really important to us because we do have some policies within the club that not only do you have to be a good player, but you have to be a good person. You have to be the right fit. Yeah. So I'm not going to bring in anyone sight unseen because if they show up at a training field and they're disruptive, if they are not being kind and a good teammate to everyone on the field, then we're going to ask them to leave mm-hmm. because the culture piece is really important and it's worked really well for us and we're going to maintain that. Well, I guess how much will that portion of a player's personality or skill set play into your decision on whether or not to bring them on to the futures squad? That's the interesting thing is so that, you know, with Minneapolis city and Minneapolis city two, we're dealing with players that are primarily, you know, I would say 20 to 30 in that range, right? And they, you know, everyone says that especially a male brain isn't fully formed until the age of 25. So with the futures, I, I guess what I'm saying is that 
I would expect that we're going to be a little bit more lenient on mm-hmm. where they're at in that development spectrum because we can help them, mm-hmm. right? But okay, so if you're a hothead at the age of 17 and okay, so let's let's work with you on that. Yeah. Um, so that's not going to, that's not, we're not going to cut any kids out because of that, but we are going to be very clear on what our expectations are mm-hmm. um, and where our standards are at. And if you can't meet them, then that's going to be something that we have to address. Excellent point. I want to talk a little bit about what you mentioned. You know, this is almost two years in the making with COVID kind of altering every business's ability to invest in some way, shape or form, as we just saw with Minnesota United and their youth development Academy. Was this ever in jeopardy and was your initial timeline or process for unveiling this and rolling it out altered at all because of the pandemic? You know, yes and no. In an interesting way, maybe it helped because when everything shut down in March, um, you know, the the coaching staff and, and what and what Minneapolis City was doing, we had to pivot away from, okay, preparing in a preseason to ramp up for our season. And on the front office, we were preparing for games and travel and all these different pieces. And we started to take a look at our organization, right? Mm-hmm. It's, we didn't stop meeting, we didn't stop talking, we actually started meeting more. And so it became this really cool opportunity for the coaching staff to get together, uh, to start having conversations on what is our playing style, really putting that down on paper, to examining, you know, different systems of play, all these different things. And what it allowed us to do is then to sit down and really examine this futures program, Originally, we were calling it the U19 program, and now it's shifted into something a little bit different because we just, we developed this different model. And Jeremiah Johnson was the catalyst for it. And then we all kind of got together and kind of made it into what it's going to be. And just so you know, Jeremy, we just presented to our member board last night mm-hmm. in a Zoom call. It was, it was an awesome presentation. Uh, a lot of people tuned in. And then this morning, we went live with the Futures website. Um, so we wanted to do that in phases. We, it was important that we talk to our board and present it to our board first. And so now you can go to mplscitysc.com backslash futures, and you, can, uh, and you can check that out. Perfect. mplscitysc.com backslash futures. It's also MPLS City Futures on on, on Twitter. Twitter. Right? That's right. You had mentioned that if a, if a player is, for lack of a better term, good enough, they could receive an invite to train with one of the senior squads. I'm assuming that that means MPLS City 2 and uh, the main MPS, MPSL squad. Does that invite also extend to games as well? Could they compete on the field in matches with one of these squads? And would that make them at that point a full-time member? of one of those squads as opposed to being a futures player? Interesting question. And the answer is technically yes, right? So the way that, and it, and it kind of, not to go get into the nitty gritty, because I'm sure none of your listeners want to hear about this, but the, it all kind of comes down to how our insurance works. Okay. So USASA, which is kind of the U.S. amateur soccer arm, they, they really provide the insurance for what we do. And that starts at age 16. 
So technically, any player, we've had a 17-year-old play on Minneapolis City before in Kevin Andrews. He's over playing in Portugal. Wow. He's a phenomenal player. So we can have a younger player come up and play for those teams. And, and there may be situations where that for that makes sense. For us, that means a conversation or thoughtful conversation between if they're with a youth club. We need to have that conversation because what we've said is it's going to be one contact a week. You know, this is an addition to what they're already doing. Mm -hmm. So that needs to have a thoughtful conversation but with their coach and the director of coaching. It also means conversations with the parents um, and making sure they understand what this means. So I wouldn't say that it won't happen, um, but, you know, we have roster limits for Minneapolis City and MC2. We have right now, I mean, going into 2020, we, we were bursting at the seams on those two teams. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had to turn away players that would have made any other team that we just, we didn't have room for, unfortunately. So the likelihood of that happening, I don't know. But that's the exciting part about the futures is that Let's bring them in. Let's get them competing. And frankly, if they're, they do have the talent and if they do have the right mentality and if they have the drive to do it, then it's going to happen. So we don't want to limit any kid um, because that's, that's how you stunt development. Obviously, Minnesota United's decision to basically put their youth academy on hold for the time being has sparked some backlash, not only from supporters, but the local soccer community in general. Uh, has that decision at all you know, influenced you guys or caused you to maybe look inward about how exactly you want this program to operate? Good question. Um, and I, you know, the one, the, the thing that's probably important here is that um, the, the two the two events, like us announcing the futures and then Minnesota United, Minnesota United um, getting rid of their academy, were completely separate events that had nothing to do with each other. And it was kind of just, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing, frankly. Um, I, I think it has helped spark some interest in what we're doing mm -hmm. because there's a, there's a need. Like we, yeah. everyone sees it now that there's a groundswell and a need for development in Minnesota. Um, and and I, I would agree with Manny Lagos and that there's talent here in Minnesota um, because Jeremy, I was a, I was an athletic director for a local high school that frankly we cranked out a lot of top talent in basketball um, and and so you see like what Minnesota has done on the basketball scene, what Minnesota has done in the volleyball scene, we've got like top tier talent. Yeah. And, and so I don't understand why that doesn't translate over to Minnesota. I think it's starting to, people are starting to really recruit out of Minnesota. There's some really high level players coming out. And obviously like we've done pretty well with all Minnesota based players. And so, you know, I, I just think that one, I, th I think that eventually I hope that Minnesota United figures something out yes. because frankly, the Minnesota, families and players deserve every opportunity and and we are just another organization that's going to be creating opportunities and that's that's the biggest piece is that we are going to create responsive programming and the market's going to dictate it so right now we've got a bunch of families and players saying we want to play and we're going to get them opportunities 
not to put you on the spot here, but can you say whether or not you've actually received interest from any of the families that were involved with Minnesota United's Youth Academy? We've received interest. Okay, perfect. Moving away from the Futures program for just a second, uh, you know, on-field competition this year, it's starting to come back in some, you know, national leagues and also even some leagues here locally with, you know, the adult leagues like the MASL and the WPASL, uh, Forward Madison over in Wisconsin, they'll be back up and running with USL League One. July 15th was the initial date MPSL said that they'd be shut down until are you hearing anything from them? And do you have plans to pursue any competition, whether it be later this summer into the fall uh, on the field? Yeah, it's a good question. We're looking at all options. You know, we, we talk, I mean, a lot. I, I would, I mean, I definitely talk to the front office and all the coaches every day um, and we're examining it. We have plans in place for the fall um, for what we are calling our fall season. And we've got, we've got a full team of guys that are signed up and ready to play. We are currently examining that right now because there was some elements of interstate travel. Um, and, uh, and we just have to make sure that we're doing the right thing. So um, we are going to be further examining it this week and, and we'll probably be announcing something right around July 15th. We're going to be meeting with the players on July 15th um, on a Zoom call to go over all of our options. It may be something that we do um, a little bit more locally just to try to mitigate some risk. Um, or we might say, you know, we, we feel confident that, that we can pull off a full fall season. So I'm excited to announce that when we're ready to do so. I, I watched the MLS little bit last night. I've been watching all the soccer going on, you know, Premier League, Bundesliga, Syria. Um, there's definitely ways to do it. Mm -hmm. Some of it is comes down to resources. Um, some of it comes down to, you know, professional or amateur, how much you can control player behavior. Um, and at the end of the day, I, I would say that, you know, and I've said this to everyone, like soccer is pretty much all I do. Um, sports is all I do. And I think it's really, really important that even though, I mean, it, I, it's my life, but it's a game. Yeah. It, it, this is just a game. And like, it's a really freaking awesome game that we all love. But at the same time, it's not worth it's not worth getting sick over. It's not worth dying over yeah. um, or potentially harming someone in your family. So uh, I think we just need to keep that perspective. Absolutely. That's, a, that's an excellent, excellent point. Competition that's been happening not on the field, the ENPSL has kind of, uh, it's manifested itself into its almost its own separate entity and its own separate league that's really been gaining a lot of interest nationwide. You guys are not participating in this year's version. As far as what the league is doing, have you heard any plans from them to extend that into you know, future seasons? And would you guys be interested in participating if they do so? Yeah, we did the we did the lower league E Cup. I I'll just say that I to have Jonah, who's a starting center back for us, um, and, and also go like to the finals yeah. in, in this lower league E Cup, pretty cool. Like yeah. you know, I, I play FIFA. It's the only video game I own. Um, <laughs> like, which is my my fiance always makes fun of me. She's like, you buy this, you know 
piece of equipment just for one game. And I'm like, yeah, well, um, <laughs> it's a pretty awesome game. <laughs> it's a pretty awesome game. Um, she won't play it with me, but it's pretty oh, awesome. Man. But to, you know, the one thing I noticed is there's not many players like actual players from these teams that are doing it. Most teams are hiring a guy or, mm-hmm. or they have some other role within the club. So I always thought that that was pretty cool. Um, in terms of what the NPSL is doing, I think it was just a, you know, like we did the lower league E cup and it was just like a little bit too much on our plate um, to do the E uh, NPSL thing. But if they do it in the future, we'll certainly consider it. You know, I don't know if anyone tuned in. We, uh, we, we would go live on Twitch. We had, you guys we had, went all out pregame show graphics, yeah, man. play by play during the game. That would made it so entertaining to watch. I, I think it'd be awesome to see that on a maybe a more regular scale if if any future in EMPS. For sure. Happens. And that's the thing. That's the thing, Jeremy, is if we're gonna do something, like we're we're going all in. Like we're gonna do it over the top, all in. And that's what people should come to expect from us. So I hope that's what they think for the futures. Like, yeah, it took us eighteen months to launch it because we're gonna do this thing right. And it's going to be awesome. Um, and so we, we're not, we're never going to half-ass anything. And, uh, and we're going to keep on bringing that mentality to everything we do. All right. Last question here. I always, I always say something's the last question and then something happens within the last question where I get like three or four more questions. So For sure. I say this is the last question, but it likely won't be the last question. Uh, circling back to the futures program. Let's say I'm a parent with a, uh, with a kid potentially interested in joining Give me your give me your elevator pitch on why we should choose to join the Future Pros. It's pretty simple, you know. This I will say the Futures program isn't for everyone. Period. Right. This is going to be for the top player that enjoys what is happening with his club, maybe um, and, and likes playing high school, whatever. It, he enjoys playing soccer, but really wants to push himself to the next level. Right, and so across any sport that I've seen, you look at all the best players in any sport, they were playing against older, bigger, better players at younger ages because their talent and physicality and athleticism dictated it, right? So when you look at Trey and Tyus Jones, those guys were playing against adults when they were 13 and 14. Now look where they're at. They're bo- they're both going to be NBA players. I mean, Trey will be an NBA player, mm-hmm. um, and and so that's what we want to do. We want to take our top players and just put them into a highly competitive environment that's going to help push them to be a better person. It's going to be cheap. We're going to offer a ton of scholarships. We're going to make it accessible to all, but more than that, we're going to help shape your son uh, into a better person as well. So. Um, you know, if parents are interested, they can go to our website. There's a player interest form there. So anyone can fill out that player interest form. Um, they can fill it out for themselves. They can fill it out for, uh, like a coach can go on there and fill it out for a player. They can fill it out as many times as they want. Um, we're just looking now to really hit the ground and start recruiting so that in November we can have the bi- biggest and best sample size of players that we have in Minnesota. Again. I found another question in there. Uh, All right. Look at when you look at the future of the futures. You say three, four, five years out. 
what do you think this is at that point? Is it in a full-on youth, uh, not a youth program, but a full-on development program with multiple age groups? Is it just an expanded version of what you have now? You know, what do you see when you look down the line at what the futures could be? That is the question. Uh, what does the future hold? Um, I don't know what the future holds. Um, right now I'm concentrated on, you know, how can we mitigate risk with COVID in the next six months? Right. So that, that's going to be, that's the biggest thing. Now, when we look at five years out, I think that the possibilities are endless, um, in terms of what, what we could be, um, you know, right now it's really important for us that we're not a youth club because we don't want to be competing with what other youth clubs are doing. Like right now, the futures program, the beauty of it is that you can play club soccer and high school and still do our thing, right? So it's just continuing to add to what kids are doing. Again, my thing goes back to we're going to continually evaluate the market and where there are gaps, we will fill them. So that could come, that could look like a women's side. That could look like you know, adding more levels to the futures program, you know, that could look like a lot of different things. So, you know, we want to continue to work with people in the Minnesota soccer scene to say, what could we, what could, what could be done better? And then we're going to try to come up with a really creative way of uh, filling that gap. I did not research this before we came on, but are there any other fourth tier NPSL, UPSL clubs that are investing in development like this? You know, I did see that the NPSL, there's some teams down in um, down in the southern regions that are doing something like a U19 program. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that happen in this capacity um, in, in our region. So we, we looked at some different models like Chattanooga it has a development program, Chattanooga FC. Um, there's some different there's some different clubs, certainly with youth components. Mm-hmm. Um, but but nothing that's going to look like ours. Ours is going to ours is going to be very very different in what it looks like. As usual, the Minneapolis City version is going to be unique to everything else that we see anywhere. That's pretty much the standard with you guys, and I think that's awesome. That's always why it's so interesting to talk to you, Adam Pribble, Technical Director of Minneapolis City SC. Thank you so much for joining the podcast once again this week, and I'm sure thank we'll you. continue these conversations in the future. Thank you. It's always a pleasure.